Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's health crisis continues to grow as complaints rise on the poor quality. Dr. Jason Perfetto, family physician and chair of clinical skills and MD admissions of Gaston University is going to join us and talk about that. And according to the Prime Minister, opposition parties are welcome to suggest names on who they believe should investigate foreign interference. So who will Ottawa choose? And what is tall poppy syndrome and how does it affect women in the worldwide workforce? That's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. And it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about healthcare here in the province of Ontario. Uh, we know that uh, the Ford government has uh, moved a number of different initiatives in the last little while. We know that uh, the provinces and the federal government have reached some sort of a funding deal. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean the debate is over. Uh, here in Ontario, of course, uh, private members bill is making some headlines right now. MPP France Jelena talks about an NDP bill to tackle the health care crisis. Here's what she had to say. It will mandate 70% of the position in health care will be permanent full-time position. Believe it or not, this is something that has been asked for since the late 70s. I was there when uh, nurses were organizing trying to get 70% of positions in hospital to be permanent full-time. We are bringing this forward to the entire healthcare system. The uh, private members bill, and we don't know where it's going to go yet. Private members bills tend not to, to be very successful for a number of reasons, but it may address one of the concerns I want to talk about with our next guest. Uh, there are a rising number of complaints on Ontario health care quality. Uh, the patient ombudsman has issued a report about this and said there were more than 3,300 complaints in 2021 into 2022, uh, most concentrated in the Toronto area and northern Ontario. Uh, Craig Thompson, by the way, is the patient ombudsman, and uh, he noted a 43% increase in complaints from patients and caregivers who said they were treated with a lack of sensitivity and caring, especially in ERs. That's rather troubling. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Jason Profetto. Uh, Dr. Profetto is a family physician and chair of clinical skills and MD administrations at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me on the show, Bill. Doctor, as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, because of COVID, because of uh, staff shortages and a whole number of other things, uh, the system is stressed. I got to assume the people within the system are stressed, and that includes, well, patients and uh, and the healthcare care professionals. Is, is that what's at the root of this uh, problem and this, these numbers? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's a pretty big uh, supply and demand issue and access to healthcare resources. We're we're seeing record high numbers of, of burnout in various departments. So like within within the hospital environment, within the, the medical school environment, with trainees of all levels. And I think at the crux of it is individuals that feel overworked and patients who are having a lot of trouble just accessing resources that otherwise should be easily accessible to them. And and I understand. I mean, if, for instance, especially in ERs, it's, if you have to go to an ER, it's usually not a pleasant experience. You're there for a particular reason, and, and you probably feel like crap to begin with, which is why you're there. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a triage system and everything else. So I, I imagine it doesn't take too long to get very frustrated. The, the, the emergency department issue is probably one of the most obvious ones. There's a couple of other ones, too. But, I mean, this is what happens with frontline medicine, right? So you open the door, literally anyone is allowed to come in. But as a result, if everyone comes in or a lot of people come in at the same time, you end up getting some pretty significant crowding. And as a result, it's not unusual to hear about these wait times in Ontario ERs of upwards of like 8, 10, 12, 15 hours before you're properly assessed and treated. And 
I mean, I, I, you know, most people would probably be impatient just to wait 15 minutes to get something, never mind multiple hours, especially when the, the stakes are high. You know, we're talking about healthcare, acute medical problems that could be dangerous in the end. So it is very, very frustrating for people who go into emergency departments. But there's a variety of other things, too, where wait lists cause trouble. Such as what else? What else are you seeing? You know, the, the it, I think we chatted about it in, in a bit of a different different vein. But when you start to think about the referral process, right? So if someone needs access to, let's say, a colonoscopy, surgery, a referral, a gynecologist, they want to get a service, a consultation. Right now, it really depends on one, the geography. So where are you? Are you in Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, rural? And two the type of service that you need. Certain things are a little bit easier than others. To get a colonoscopy right now, not too bad. If you're in the Hamilton area, you need to see an ears, nose, and throat specialist. It can be tricky. The McMaster ENT referral process, you know, it's not unusual to wait six to nine months before you actually hear about your appointment. Not before you see somebody, before you hear about the appointment itself. And that is a, that is a trend that we're starting to see across multiple services. And then even, even the low-hanging fruit would be like primary care, you know, which is the entry into the medical system for most patients. If you don't have a family doctor, if it takes a long time to see your family doctor, it can be challenging from multiple angles there too. And we've all heard stories like that. I have a friend of mine that had to wait, I think it was seven or eight months right now, just to, to find out a date when he could go and see an orthopedic surgeon uh, and, and then you know, wait for the, the appointment after that. Is, is, is it going to be solved if we just said, okay, fine, you know, let's, let's, let's you know, get the, the, the you know, foreign trained professionals, let's get people in there. You, do you just need more bodies in, in the hospitals themselves to try to, to complete and improve that service level? I love the question. So now here's the issue. I don't think it's purely a quantity issue. I even don't think it's necessarily a supply and demand issue in a very reductionist way. I think what has to happen is the quality of the workforce has to be optimized. And what do I mean by that, right? You know, the, the easiest example is what you think about with burnout. So if you have a doctor that enters practice and things are becoming very difficult, very frustrating in a short period of time, you'll see the hours that they work start to dwindle, the length of their appointments, the wait times will increase. And what will happen is even if you have a doctor or specialist in any given area, the access to said specialist or doctor won't necessarily be optimal. So as a result, it looks like a, a promising number, but in reality, it's not being delivered. And so what do you experience? You experience more of a wait time. The reverse, though, is very important. If you get people in healthcare, you know, um, doctors, physician assistants, nurses, etc., they feel good. They're ready to work. They actually have a really high job satisfaction. They, they, they work in, a, in an office where there's a lot of windows, seeing a lot of people, and, and they have good relationships. These are people that, and you know, I feel fortunate this way too. A lot of the people that I see every day are wonderful people, very good, high, high, of, high job satisfaction. But as a result, I want to work. I'm happy to work. And that's what we need to see, I think, more collectively as that cultural shift occurs. So that, but that has to be organic, though, doesn't it? That doesn't that isn't that created by the people that are already there to create that environment for them? I mean, you want to have more people there, but to buy into the system that that somebody else is doing right now, and 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 is it realistic to suggest that we can get that done in a timely fashion? It 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 starts. I mean, this, there's there's a lot of debate around this point. 
I think it starts very early on when you go look at medical training, the culture of medical training, what are we focusing on, and then how does that transcend into a longitudinal fashion from medical school to residency to extended training and into practice. That is the key. And I think what's happening to a lot of people is a sense of disillusionment where they actually are in medical school, everything seems bright and promising. And then when you get into the workforce, even in late medical school, when you're working in a hospital and you see what it's like to have long hours, you're working in older physical hospital systems, there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction with patients, complaints, people waiting. I mean, you got to think about it, right? Like emergency medicine is a very exciting profession and you, you get to help people in a variety of ways. However, if you go to your shift and the first person you see on the list has been waiting for 10 hours, you're, you're already starting with a less than ideal rapport with the individual. So I would suggest that, yes, I think it's organic, and I think it starts very early in medical training with a specific type of culture that has to continue forward. And I'm not sure that we're actually doing that just yet. And and I guess one of the other things, and I think you and I had this discussion probably a couple of years ago now, uh, about a, an understanding of exactly how the process is supposed to work. You know, if you walk in there and say, you know, I've got a pain in my abdomen or something like that, you expect somebody's going to look after you right away. Uh, a nurse will triage you, a doctor is going to see you, uh, and, you know, hey, there's only two other people in, in the ER right now, so I should be in there in 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, but there's a process, I guess, that, you know, that goes on in those systems that me as patients may not be aware of about, you know, people that are available to, to do the assessment, et cetera, and, and to look at results. And I guess there's a timing process there that uh, maybe, first of all, we don't understand. And second of all, we, we get frustrated by because we want immediate action. Think, you know, think about an MRI or CT scan process, right? So I'm a doctor in the community. Someone comes to me and they, they're having issues with their, their head or headaches or migraines. And maybe there's some worrisome signs. So we want to order an MRI of the brain or a CT scan of the brain. That's competing with individuals that are in the emergency department that are presenting with head injuries or acute problems that are a little bit more dangerous regarding their brain. And that's competing with patients that are in hospital that may have just had brain surgery, they need an, an urgent follow-up CT scan of the brain. Next thing you know, we're all competing from the same pool of resources in that hospital. And what ends up happening? A very complex triaging system, but the user experience for someone like me is that I get an appointment for a brain MRI or CT scan three, four, five, six months down the road. Now, do I appreciate what's happening in the background a little bit? You know, I do, but I, I'm also selfish. I want people to get service pretty quick. Does a patient understand that? I mean, the majority of people, I think it would be very difficult to understand the nuanced complexities in that sort of scenario. There's another element to this uh, report uh, from the ombudsman that I wanted you to touch on, uh, and maybe something a lot of people are not aware of, but they say a number of cases uh, where people have actually filed complaints have to do with the interaction between uh, security guards and, and some of the patients, people waiting in ERs. 
Uh, and we've heard the story, sadly, about uh, people that do get outraged. Uh, the, the could be a number of different factors as to why they do that. And, and, and the guards may have to intercede in circumstances like that. Uh, now, I'm assuming, doctor, that they, those are not hospital employees. They're probably contracted out from some company. But do they receive training? I mean, this is a special environment. This is not just, you know, standing at the gate at a football game to make sure everybody's orderly. It's a, it's a different mindset. You're dealing with a different clientele. Do, do they understand that and take that into account? Yeah, okay, excellent question. And here's the issue. Um, I don't think we appreciate how much the the medical service industry is actually not dissimilar to any customer service industry. So, I mean, I, I would actually say the way in which you run an emergency department or a family medicine practice or some sort of outpatient clinic in the hospital actually should have very similar principles to the way that you run a very successful restaurant. When you walk in, there should be a person there smiling. Yes, even if you're having a medical issue, even if you're in pain, being being greeted by someone that's smiling, ready to help, ready to talk, ready to take you in, doing things that to the best of their ability is very, very important. I think the customer service aspect to this has been lost. I think you see a lot of this with burnout, overworked people, huge wait lists. So if you go to a, an emergency, it's packed, you're in a lot of pain, the triage system's a little bit short and people are a little bit rude and it's in the middle of the night, you look around and the waiting room is packed, I can see how people start to get a little bit upset and then, you know, issues with security can start thereafter, right? So I think what has to happen, and I've seen this personally, you walk into somewhere, it doesn't matter where it is, a restaurant, a medical clinic, um, Disney World. When you have people smiling, greeting, they want to help, that culture is there. It makes a huge difference. But in order to do that, you need a healthy workforce, healthy workplace. Which is uh, the exception more than the rule, I guess, these days. When, you know, we hear people working double shifts sometimes. And uh, you just mentioned you know, that if you just come on shift and, and the first patient you see has been waiting there 10 hours. Uh, when I walk through the door, if the first person that I see at the triage or at the desk there has been there for 18 hours, uh, it's, it's the reverse situation. But it's still, it, it's, it's not the best scenario, is it? Yeah, exactly. And even when you start to look at the reasons why people file complaints against doctors with the CPSO, the vast majority of them are actually related to interpersonal interactions. So people feel like that the, the, the doctor or the person on the other end is not communicating effectively. They're communicating in a less than ideal. It's usually not related to negligence. So I, 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 I can't stress how important this is, that interpersonal connectivity between the medical system, not just the doctors, but everyone and the patient is huge. And even in my office, some of the most positive comments we receive are the fact that our staff at the front and our receptionists and our administrative people are just kind, welcoming people when they bring people in, when you say hello, and that makes a huge difference going forward. Well, it's a it's an interesting report, and like you say, it's a snapshot as to where we are these days when you see statistics like this. And uh, hospitals, I guess, are going to have to deal with some individual things, and I'm sure there'll be some recommendations uh, coming out from the health ministry about how they might deal with some of these. Doctor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for uh, giving us your perspective on this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Jason Perfetto from McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ottawa, the debate continues about, uh, if, well, interference, of course, in our Canadian elections. Foreign powers, how much of an influence? What did they do? What did the government, if anything, know? 
and on and on and on. And uh, well, there's a, a real headbutting going on here, a political headbutting going on between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau on what's happening here. Global Kyle Benning has some details for us. The Conservatives, NDP and Bloc Québécois all echoed their calls for a public inquiry into foreign interference. Despite doubling down, the Prime Minister remains steadfast in the government's plan to implement a special rapporteur. Justin Trudeau says the Liberals will listen to proposals for the position. We will, of course, uh, be open to suggestions that uh, the various parties put forward for names for this uh, independent special rapporteur. On Monday, the PM announced the role and clarified the person would be in charge of ensuring Canada has the tools to defend itself from foreign interference, as well as reassuring Canadians their institutions are secure. Kyle Benning, Global News. So I don't know if anybody's really moving the yardsticks on this debate. This is a very serious issue, and uh, you'd, you'd like to think uh, that there might even be some bipartisan cooperation here to try to get to the bottom of it. I don't see that on the horizon. Maybe maybe we're just misreading the tea leaves here. Uh, our next guest may have some perspective on that to help us uh, uh, get a clearer picture. Michael Kempka is, of course, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. I'm looking at some of the comments of Mr. Polyev and, of course, Mr. Trudeau's uh, defense that, you know, this is not really necessary. We don't need this inquiry that they're asking for. Uh, there's a little part of me that says, when are the adults going to get into the conversation here? These guys want to play political football with everything. This is a, a very important issue. Well, hopefully soon we see this adult conversation because it goes right to the question of the integrity of Canada's system for voting and representation. And if you can shake the public's faith in those things, you might as well hand it to the opponents of the modern democratic state because you'll suppress voter count. People won't come out to vote and all kinds of radical ideologies will sneak into the House of Parliament as a result. A bit similar to the dynamics in the United States. We've got to get on top of this urgently. Well, and you're right. It, it doesn't take much to push the electorate in the, in, in a different direction, does it? Uh, you know, all you need is, is a, a guy like a Donald Trump to say the system is broken, the system is corrupt. And there are people that are looking for an excuse uh, to try to, to push back. And, and boy, we're giving it to them right now. And I, I, I'm hoping it doesn't come to the same end that, that it seems to have had in the States and, and the, the kind of uh, problems it, it's created there. Uh, but the inaction here, I think, is what bothers me. I mean, are we really at a stalemate here about how to handle this? It shouldn't be a stalemate because it's actually pretty simple. That sort of warning about the United States, that's the distant warning in the horizon. There are steps yeah. that we can take to head that problem off at the pass and fix this before we get to that. So that's a serious, threatening outcome. But we can do we, there's things we can do in the meantime to get things back on track. So on the one hand, calling for an inquiry right out of the box uh, at the beginning there, I understand the appeal of that because you want independent people, not people who are appointed by uh, the prime minister or his office, not people who are in any way beholden to the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, to look at this thing from beginning to end and figure out what's gone on here in terms of what we've been hearing, leaked documents to the media from CSIS, explaining how, in their view, they've received intelligence that the People's Republic of China is funneling money to preferred candidates, for, at least at the level around the greater Toronto area, and also putting voters who are not properly registered on buses under threat of yanking their visas and sending them back to mainland China to vote for preferred candidates in nomination contests where candidates are determined for elections. 
So if we don't get to the bottom of that, these are serious, serious problems. So I understand the appeal of an inquiry. Justin Trudeau is, amongst many of his flaws, at minimum politically shrewd, and he has kicked up a very complex set of proposals that distract, in a certain sense, from having an inquiry and create a little bit of time. It slows the process down. And I, on, on, if you interpret that charitably, maybe he's hoping things cool down so we have a more rational discussion about it. And if you interpret that less charitably, you say he's just ragging the puck here and causing a delay, hoping that some of the heat comes off of him. Well, and, and when you look at, well, I was going to say some of the details. There aren't that many details to look at here uh, with what he's proposing. But uh, he did say that uh, whoever this person is, uh, at the end of the, their report or uh, their investigation, uh, they would retain the right to, to suggest that there should be a full investigation. So it's, it's, it certainly sounds like he's just buying time here, doesn't it? It does. So one advantage we might have, though, this fancy name of the special rapporteur, which is a concept that actually comes from the United Nations. They're always bringing in these special experts that they call special rapporteurs. Um, is to come in, take a look at what the existing institutions are already doing, especially NSICOP, which is the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. They're the ones, they're going to get all kinds of uh, inside secret information. They look at what happened they're going to more address systemic issues. In other words, reforming the system. That body doesn't really get into the question of individual blame and responsibility for anybody who may have done something that's improper or illegal. There's a couple of other bodies that are looking at more systems approaches for how CSIS and the police and government all interact with each other. And that's important. The idea is that this rapporteur would then look at that and say, what's missing? in the mix here. And if there's going to be an inquiry, let's not have it be duplicative. We'll have it only do the things that haven't been covered. In my mind, I don't see anybody who's going to cover that question of individual responsibility and potential consequences for any bad behavior other than that inquiry. And I think that's where we should go. Very focused. Don't allow anybody to change the channel and start pointing at all manner of very broad issues. What happened? in those nomination contests, what's going on with Chinese dollars, who knew about it, who's benefiting, they've got to wear it. How difficult, though, is it going to be to, to keep the guardrails in place for something like that, Michael? I'm a, I think that's always a concern. I don't care who's in government. Uh, that, that, you know, sometimes the, the, the people that take over these investigations uh, do tend to, to take some side roads or some off ramps. And, uh, you know, the Clinton investigation, I don't know going back in, in political history here, but mm. they, they were essentially investigating the possibility of, of, of a white water and investments down in the southern United States. Uh, they didn't really find anything, but they didn't break up the investigation. They just decided all of a sudden, Ken Starr investigation, they just decided to start investigating the Clintons personally. And that's when they got into sex lives and everything else. That was that, but, and we all, we all know where that ended up. And I'm not suggesting that's going to happen here. But can you do something like this? Or is it going to depend really on who is going to be appointed to run this whole thing uh, to keep it on track? It depends on who's appointed. Uh, you definitely need somebody with a history of working with all political parties who knows something about how the security agencies interact with one another and with government. So it's for me, it's really no use just appointing some very learned judge who's up to date on, say, the criminal law or even national security law as a theoretical set of issues. You've got to have people who understand how these agencies interact with one another, what their culture is, 
where the uh, roadblocks are for sharing information and where all the sort of sneaky stuff happens and address that in their inquiry. I think one of the ways to keep it from going off track is you do it in phases. So there's some urgent matters that have to be resolved before the next election, which in a minority situation theoretically could come any time, although we do have a supply agreement until 2025 by, on the part of the NDP. Say right away, we need to safeguard our nominations process and cleanse our donations process before the next election. Because these, there's no secret here, we've already identified these as the weak links in our electoral chain that are most open and vulnerable to foreign interference. This work could be wrapped up within a year, uh, sort of lickety split in that way, so that by the next election we're ready. And then if people want to start getting into any of the broader issues that we've missed, add those on as second or even third phases of an inquiry don't start with all the big questions. We won't have any answers in time for an election, and we'll have the same vulnerabilities in place. How do you select a leader? I mean, you know, the prime minister's suggesting that he'll take suggestions from the opposition parties. Uh, Mr. Polyev yesterday, I'm sure you saw his presser, Michael, he essentially said anybody who's ever been associated with the Liberal Party is corrupt, so they can't lead this thing, which is a pretty childish thing to say. There's some reputable people that may have voted Liberal or been Liberals at one time, uh, would probably be qualified to do this. Uh, no matter who they select here, they're, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, as to who's actually going to get the job. Well, that's right. And so I'm, I've been very hard on the liberals in what I've been writing the last couple of days, because that's more my experience, uh, you know, having operated in, in a nomination in Scarborough in 2015 that didn't work out for me, but seeing these things on the ground. But all political parties are part of the same set of systemic issues. So, look, if anything was done improperly by the Liberal Party in either taking money or uh, sort of improper votes from Chinese... Uh, the Chinese diaspora that was pressured by Beijing to support particular candidates, they've got to wear that. But at the same time, we can't accept a position on the part of the conservatives or any other that the end game here is simply to remove Justin Trudeau from office. Beyond the question of Justin Trudeau, there is this corrupted and corruptible process that all parties are benefiting from. We've got to fix that process because the end game here is to make sure that voters retain faith in the voting system and the system for representation. It's got, you know, in a way, I understand many people are very angry with Mr. Trudeau, myself included. But the end game here is not simply to get rid of him. We've got a bigger set of issues here for whoever then becomes prime minister. Well, and I understand Polio's strategy here, such as it is here. He just he, he wants to cast that shadow right now so that no matter who it is, he can just claim partisanship, which he's done on other things. Uh, and I don't know who the answer is. I, I know who they might appoint in something like this. But you, I, I think you've nailed one of the major concerns here in the process itself, Michael. If you're looking at this through the prism of defeating Justin Trudeau, uh, this is going to fail no matter what. Uh, you know, where's the focus here to find the, the, as you say, the weak links in the system and shore them up. I mean, we could be going to an election again in another year, could be six months, could be, as you say, 2025. I'd like to think that they're going to identify and address some of these weaknesses. Well, I hope so. And, you know, I know that's the old story, address systemic issues, but I'm also saying, sure, those who have done bad things must be held responsible. And that includes, if it's the case of the prime minister, then he's got to wear that. But I would also say, there are some conservative members of parliament and provincial parliament in Ontario that I and other journalists uh, have their eye on 
who may or may not be involved in similar processes. So the blame is not going to stop with a couple of people in the federal government. Everybody who's been implicated in these kinds of dark networks hooked up with People's Republic of China, allegedly, is going to have to uh, answer for that. Which means they're probably going to have to cast a pretty wide net then, aren't they? Yes, you start, the, the you know, many of these things are amongst the worst kept secrets uh, amongst political operatives on the ground on the east end of Toronto. I mean, every junior uh, campaign volunteer has heard the whispers about who is involved in these networks. So to map it out and look into it, starting with the leaks that we've already had uh, reported by Global and the Globe and Mail, from those players, it's not difficult to draw the web of connections to other political actors throughout the GTA and then look into it because there may or may not be merit to this intelligence. Intelligence that comes from CSIS is not evidence that could be used in a court. It's not the same quality. So you start with the intelligence and you investigate it and work out if there's actually something going on about these whispers that we've all been hearing on the east end of Toronto for a decade. I, I know we're almost out of time, but I've got to get your perspective on something else that uh, that uh, we learned of just the other day. Uh, the RCMP apparently announced an investigation, but not into foreign interference, but into the whistleblowers, uh, they, or some people say the leakers, uh, who leaked these, this information in the first place. Uh, is is that focus wrong-headed? I mean, shouldn't we be focusing on the problem here, not the uh, one of the, the offshoots of the, that problem? Well, I mean, I get why they're doing it. They're saying it makes us look bad in the international intelligence community if we have people in our intelligence apparatus leaking stuff. I would say, okay, fair play, go after that. But at the same time, you've got to be looking into the other prong of this, which is what is the content of these leaks, which is alarming to Canadians, the idea that their electoral system has been infiltrated by hostile ideological opponent states uh, around the world. So, all right, look into any potential leaks if you must, but please look into the, the content of those leaks because that is the real concern here. Well, and that's what happened. I mean, again, I don't want to get you know, the historical perspective on this. Uh, you know, when Daniel Ellsberg uh, leaked the Pentagon Papers, I mean, he was considered to be a traitor uh, by that administration because it exposed some rather embarrassing aspects about their Vietnam strategy. Uh, but in, I think history now understands that without him, God knows what would have happened. I mean, you need that that sort of courage, I guess. So we have to tread carefully as to exactly who they're investigating and what their motivations would be. Well, that's it. I mean, there's a checkered history of leakers. Not all of them are sort of uh, right off on the white horse. Some of them have bad intentions. Yeah, true. Uh, so I think we need to look into it. But at the same time, it's the content of the leaks that is the most alarming at this time. Exactly, as they saw with the Ellsberg's work. Uh, a fascinating process. Always great to get your perspective on this, Michael. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you kindly, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Always great to, to get his read on what's going to be happening next. And we'll watch and see what's going to uh, come about when the, uh, the the members get back together. I think they're all having their meeting. This is Wednesday, so they're all having their caucus meetings. But uh, during question period later on, you can bet that the, the fires will be stoked once again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The key issue today is today. It's International Women's Day. And uh, it's a day that's being acknowledged globally, of course, in workplaces around the world. And uh, it's a time for reflection, I guess, as well. And there was an interesting op-ed piece uh, that appeared in the conversation.com that I wanted to, to get your read on a little bit later on. 
Uh, and it asks, I think, a very important question. Uh, does International Women's Day actually motivate change, or is it simply symbolic? I know it's a very pointed question, and people have some pretty strong opinions on both sides. And I look forward to your opinions on that just after 11.30 this morning. Uh, right now, though, I want to talk about uh, where women are, where they've been, and and some of the challenges. And let's face it, I know that people are going to say, look, at, come on, there are pay equity issues that, that, that have been resolved, and, and it's a legislation in some places now. So we should all be living happily ever after. Well, we're not. And there are a number of challenges uh, that women are still facing on an everyday basis. Uh, and this report we're about to talk about thing identifies a number of those. Uh, Women of Influence, a leading global organization committed to advancing gender equity in the workplace, uh, released their groundbreaking findings in a report called The Tallest Poppy. Now, the first international research project of its kind. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating because I think it gives us a very uh, interesting perspective and, and a very pointed uh, concern about women in the workplace these days. And to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Rumit Billen, who is the author of the study and CEO of Women of Distinction. A doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you so much for having me and for having this incredibly important discussion today well, on International Women's Day. It is because you know we always want to talk about you know where we were and there've been some horrendous stories about uh, and things that went on in the workplace on a consistent basis. Uh, there've been attempts at legislation to try to cure some of those. There's been an educational process. Uh, we can talk about how effective that has been or hasn't been, as the case might be. But the tallest poppy, I think, is interesting because it's it gives us a snapshot on on where women in the workplace are right now and one of the biggest challenges. Maybe you'd explain to us about the whole concept of of the title, the tallest poppy, and what it entails. Absolutely. And so when we think about tall poppy syndrome, what that is, is when you are attacked, resented, disliked, ostracized because of your success or achievements. So let's say, for example, you receive a promotion or you get a new job. You're attacked because of the success. And the term was actually coined in Australia, where um, it refers to the metaphor of poppies, where they're expected to grow together. And if one grows too tall, it gets cut down to size so that it is the same size as all, all the other poppies. The study here is is eye-opening, quite frankly. Uh, it, it indicates that 90% of the respondents experience this phenomenon at work. Did that surprise you that, that the number was that high? Sadly, it didn't surprise me. Now, we did this uh, internationally. We had 4,710 respondents over 103 countries. And when we see that number, what it tells us is that women are absolutely experiencing this in the workplace. Doesn't matter where you're living, doesn't matter the profession that you're in, the industry that you're in, it absolutely is having an impact on women as well as organizations. Well, because we've talked about the glass ceiling in, in many workplaces, and, and this seems almost like there's there's a punishment uh, that follows for people that want to, to break through that glass ceiling or that want to achieve. It's really a form of bullying, isn't it? That's exactly it. You're punished for being successful. And it's a bit counterintuitive because as an organization, you would want your employees to work their best. You would want the best out of your top talent. But 60% of respondents said that they actually believed they would be penalized if they were perceived as ambitious. 75% said it impacted their productivity. And so when we look at the statistics, it is incredibly eye-opening. Yeah, but now we're getting into stereotypes, sadly, which I think still exist in some places. And, and, and you know, maybe the most stark is, is the one that, you know, if, if there's a male employee who's being aggressive and wanting to move up the ladder, they're, they're, he's a go-getter. He's really, he knows what he wants. A woman does it, and she's labeled as conniving, as, as well, a number of other words that we don't want to use here, too. Uh, and, and I guess from your numbers here, that, that still exists in, in some ways. 
Absolutely. And if a woman comes across as aggressive or assertive um, and is seen as aggressive, sometimes we also connect that with her being competent, but not being likable, right? When we look at women who are nurturing, they're a lot more likable in our eyes. And that goes to gender stereotypes that exist. I, I, I know a lot of people listening to this right now are going to be surprised and say, oh, come on, it's not like that in 2021. Uh, but these are people in the workplace that have responded to your survey and, and they were they're pretty frank with their comments, weren't they? Exactly. We heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. And we did this study in 2018, so five years ago, where we focused just on Canada and the experience women were having in the work place in Canada. Now, we did this internationally, and it hasn't gotten any better. Even though it's been five years, we haven't made progress on this front. Who are the perpetrators? Uh, you know, who, who are the ones that try to knock successful people back down? Uh, you know, I, I know that, you know, you've been doing the study for a few years right now. Has, has that perception changed? Or has, has, is there a reality here as to actually who's, who's culpable? So that's a very interesting question because in the comments and anecdotally, what we hear a lot of is, you know, it's women bringing women down, right? It's women against women. We should be lifting each other up. Now, when we pose this question and we had respondents, you know, indicate and identify who was doing the cutting, it was, they were actually more likely to um, say men were doing the cutting, but where it differed was in the position titles. So men who were CEOs, senior executives, management, they were more likely to undermine the tall poppies, whereas women in peer colleague roles or direct report roles were more likely to undermine. So the short answer is everybody's doing it. Um, it just depends on what role it is. I'm looking at some of the uh, the, the responses here, doctor, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, again, it goes right back to stereotypes. Uh, 77% of respondents said their achievements were downplayed by uh, by their superiors, mostly males. 72% uh, said they were left out of meetings and discussions or were ignored altogether. 70% said they were undermined because of their achievements. 66% uh, said others took credit for their work. Uh, this, this, I can understand the kind of mental stress something like this would 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 bring on to to people who like to think they're being successful, but the, the price they're paying for it is is monumental here. Exactly. And when we asked them the impact on themselves, there was an increase in stress. Respondents also shared that it had a negative impact on their mental health. They also had lower self-confidence, which is also counterintuitive because they should have a boost in self-confidence because they've achieved something. So the impact on the individual, it's monumental. I, I, I don't know how deeply we can get into the psychology of this, but why? Why is it that the people would target somebody like that who clearly is an, is, is an asset to whatever business this is, uh, clearly has shown a, a, an aptitude for moving up the ladder because of their abilities. And at the same time, they, they seem to want to punish them. Is, is, it, is it fear that they're, they're going to lose their job to a woman of that stature? What, what's, what's going on in their heads? It absolutely could be that scarcity mindset. If she gets a piece of the pie, that's less pie for me. It could also be because of jealousy or envy. Sexism could be at play, gender stereotypes could be at play, and that individual who's doing the cutting, they may have low self-esteem or low self-confidence, or they may be insecure as well. So there are different reasons as to why it could happen. Interestingly, in the comments, what the respondent said and added to the list was ageism. Ageism could be also another reason that someone is experiencing tall poppy syndrome. 
uh, Lisa Laflamme comes to mind, uh, the former CTV news anchor who uh, clearly was was being targeted by somebody up in the the head offices there, and and probably well, and we've seen it happen, and, and I almost hesitate to do that. I think it's a classic example of it. But you know, there are people that are maybe less famous than Lisa Laflamme that are probably experiencing this every every day. Uh, and and don't have that kind of platform to be able to talk about what happened to them and why and the impact that it's had, and and I, I'm I'm thinking we have to spend some time talking about them and their stories and and what we can do about that, which basically I guess swings us around to the question: How do you, if you not eradicate, at least mitigate the these sorts of mindset? I mean, what can you do? I the, the initial reaction I know you got in the study was not much you can do about it; it's just the way people think. So, uh, but there is something that can be done, isn't there? Absolutely. And when we think about how we can manage it, and you're right, we might not be able to eradicate it, but how do we mitigate? How do we navigate? How do we manage this? The first piece is to build awareness. Uh, Many respondents said, I did not know that this had a name. Thank you for putting a name to my experience to my reality. And I think naming it, acknowledging it, building awareness around it is critical. Number two, it's also about accountability. So holding people accountable for their actions, for their behaviors, regardless of their position, title, or role in that organization. And then number three, I'll add in there is transparency. Being transparent around opportunities for promotion and advancement, this is incredibly important as well. Well, and compensation, I guess, has to play into that too, doesn't it, doctor? You know, the, the pay inequity still exists. Uh, our Canadian women's soccer team could uh, certainly attest to that, uh, but there have been other examples of it uh, in other workplace environments where there is a huge difference uh, about compensation for it simply because of gender. Absolutely. That is still at play, which is surprising to me that that's still at play. And I want to go back to what you said earlier, because it was such an important point about the glass ceiling where, you know, we can get, we can break that glass ceiling, but we're punished for it, whether we're not being paid adequately or, you know, we're at the decision making table. But when we get there, we're silenced, we're ignored. We're spoken over, we're dismissed. All of this is still at play and we still have progress to make. If that's going to happen, and, and it does happen based on, on the numbers here and the responses you got from uh, the number of people that have responded to, to the survey, doctor, uh, we talked about the mental health issues and, and the strain and the stress it must put on every day uh, at the workplace. If, you know, in fact, you are being ignored or, or you know, being vilified or, or you know, isolated, uh, you're not going to stay there very long, if at all possible, uh, which means a, a number of these people, I guess, that are negatively impacted at some place are going to end up looking for more work, and that's going to be problematic, and looking for another job, uh, even if it's a, a you know, a parallel position. Uh, you know, jobs and are, are premium these days. Uh, workplaces should be doing the best to try to retain people of skill such as this, but at the same time, uh, if they allow an environment like this to exist, they're basically pushing people out the door, aren't they? That's exactly it. So 50% of our respondents, half of the respondents said, I left the organization where I experienced that. And these are your high achievers. So think about who's leaving, the ones that are more expensive to replace, the ones that are more difficult to replace. And more importantly, think about who's staying. The people that are staying are the cutters. So no one winning here. And oftentimes organizations talk about, you know, there's this war for top talent. Well, let's take a step back. It's about retaining top talent. Instead of the war for top talent, we need to focus on retaining our tall poppies. They are the ones that are your high achievers. They are the ones that you want to stay and to nurture. You've been doing this for a number of years now uh, with the organization. Uh, Do you feel it's getting better? Are Are we learning? Are we 
Uh, are we moving in the right direction? Not fast enough, clearly, we, but are we moving in the right direction? That's exactly it. We are moving in the right direction. We have made some progress. We still have a ways to go, but I would be doing a disservice if I said that we haven't made progress. We are. And there are a lot of organizations out there that are in do doing incredible research, incredible work in this space. Um, and my hope is that we get there. Well, and, and again, you know, we can talk about, uh, you know, as you say, participation in senior levels of management uh, around the boardroom table. And, and, and again, the, the percentage of, of female to males in, in, in those populations is, is embarrassingly low. Uh, I would imagine if that's changed uh, for the positive, then you might see a change in attitude with some of these businesses, too. I hope so. And I'm going to add to that because it's not just about getting to the number. It's about what happens when we get there. What is our experience when we get there as well? Yes, we, there are metrics and metrics are important, but it's also the experience that matters as well because that's how we can create a sense of belonging. Uh, on this day, but on I think every day, we need to be cognizant of, of what's going on. And, uh, you know, like I say, you know, we've, we've heard stories and we've discussed this on this program for many years about some of the challenges that women in the workplace face in, in, in some professions more so than others. We understand that. But then, you know, we see a companion story about a piece of legislation that was passed or this is something we're going to enact here and we figure, OK, well, that's addressed. Uh, uh, we're not living it every day like these people are. And I think we have to be aware of what can happen and what the challenges uh, are that still exist here. And I think that's why this is such an important survey, Doctor. Thank you so much. And you're right. Policies can go so far. It goes down to our day-to-day -day interactions, how we show up, how we interact with each other, and what's happening in the workplace. Absolutely. Uh, doctor, thank you so much. I know it's a busy day for you. I've seen you on a couple of the programs already this morning. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today, too, because I think it's important that we bring this to our, our listeners' attention. Uh, thank you. Uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure, as we go down the road here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. You too. Dr. Rumi Bailan, who is the author of the study and also the CEO of Women of Influence. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.